talking about the pelvic girdle and the pelvic bone and how the pelvis, the pelvic bone or coxal bone or hip bone um, articulates with the sacrum and anteriorly both pubic bones they connect through the symphysis pubis or pubic symphysis which is fibro, fibrocartilage and uh, we talk about the pelvic brim which is a, a, a line actually that goes around it's a landmark that we use to separate what we call the false pelvis from the true pelvis the false pelvis um, is the one that goes above the line and uh, true pelvis goes below the line. So all the uh, all this complex composed by the three bones of each iliac bone, ilium, pubis, and ischium connected to the sacrum, all this is called the pelvic girdle or the hip. And we see some of the markings here, the iliac crest, the junction of the ilium with the sacrum is called the sacroiliac joint. And that's a common place of pain. Some people that have pain in the back comes actually from the sacroiliac joint, especially later in life, like osteoarthrosis. Uh, it usually affects this, uh, uh, this joint between the sacrum and the iliac uh, bone or in ilium and this ilium determines two spaces here called iliac fossa which are spaces that would be part of the pelvic cavity anteriorly we have the abdominal wall muscles of the abdominal wall and that conforms the whole pelvic abdominal pelvic cavity actually uh, we studied that in the first chapters then we see um, the pubic symphysis in this picture, which is the fibrocartilage. And right below the pubic uh, symphysis, we have this angle or, or arch, which is determined by both pubic bones. The pubic bones connecting there, they determine that pubic arch. This orifice, this hole right here, is not marked here, but it has a name. It's called obturator foramen. It's for nerves and blood vessels that have the same name, obturator. And we see the pelvic brim. The pelvic brim is all this ridge that goes around and determines what we say, the false pelvis from the true pelvis. How the femur connects to the pelvic bone? Through the acetabulum. These are the sockets. The acetabulum, the sockets for the head of the femur. For the head of the femur. This is the pelvis, seen from a lateral view. Better say a sagittal section through the pelvis. And we can see the lines that represent or separate the true pelvis and the false pelvis here. You see this line that goes here. It actually has some markings and it goes from the sacral promontory, which is that part where the lumbar, lumbar vertebrae turn into the sacrum, 
It's a prominence. That's called sacral promontory. And the superior border of the pubic bones. We trace a line in that direction, and that is that matches with the pelvic brim. So that's why we see and we have false pelvis above the line and true pelvis below the line. And the axis of the pelvic of the pelvis is called the pelvic axis. That is actually the way or the direction that the head of the baby has to go through during birth. This is called the birth canal. Posteriorly, we have the sacrum and coccyx. Anteriorly, we have the pubic bones. And that's why and you imagine this all around. It's like it's a canal. It's called the birth uh, canal. And this other line that we see here between the coccyx and the inferior border of the pubic symphys or the pubic bone is called the pelvic outlet, the exit. That's, that's one of the planes that we look for during birth and we see the babies going through this line, this plane, and we say that the head is uh, practically out of the pelvic canal or birth canal. Question. Yes. There is a joint between the coccyx and the sacrum, um, the sacrococcygeal joint, and this actually is mobile. It moves, it flexes, and extends to a certain limit, of course. And that also gets relaxed during birth um, under the effect of hormones, and later in life it gets fused, all that sacrum and coccyx. But yeah, there, is a, there, is a, there are joints there. There are joints between the sacrum and coccyx, and um, in between the components of the coccyx, it's a little flexibility also. One of the things that we have to uh, do in the lab when we have the bones uh, on our tables is to uh, learn how to differentiate if the pelvis belongs to a female or to male. There are some markings to consider this uh, and some uh, features. Three of them are listed here. In male, usually, the bones are larger, heavier, not always. That's one, only one factor. The inlet and outlet are smaller in female, I mean in, in male. It makes sense. But not always. And the pubic arch has an angle or, of lower than 90 degrees. Those are features of the male pelvis. As we see here, the pubic arch, less than 90 degree. Um, and the inlet and outlet are smaller. How we measure that? Well, there are specific ways that we can measure that. And what it counts is the shape of the pelvic brim or inlet entrance into the birth canal or pelvic canal. The different shapes will determine differences between male and female. Uh, usually the male pelvis is more triangular and the female pelvis is more round or even oval. So, as we see here, this is a female pelvis. The distance between the iliac crests, the more lateral the most lateral part of the iliac crest, that distance is larger in a female. 
And the pelvic brim, the inlet, as you see here, has an oval shape. That's one of the differences. We should see the pelvic bone and see what is the shape of that uh, inlet, and we'll be able to differentiate. But one of the features that is very, very accurate most of the times is the pubic arch. And female is greater than 90 degrees. Pubic symphysis is more flexible, but that's, a, that's something that happens during birth, or during pregnancy, in the last stages of the pregnancy and before birth. This pubic symphysis gets very soft and allows certain flexibility, as well as the coccyx, the joints in between the small vertebrae of the coccyx and connection to the sacrum. And these are two pelvis, two pelvis where we exaggerate a little bit the differences. But sometimes it's, it's this clear, sometimes not. Um, you can see clearly here that the distance between both iliac crests is smaller than in the male. Take a look at the pubic arch, the differences of the pubic arch. The shape of the pelvic inlet in male is kind of triangular and female tends to be more oval like that. Those are the main differences. Now in the bones that we have in the lab, you will, it will be easier to identify these features. They are typical uh, pelvis. Uh, sometimes it's not so clear because uh, during pregnancy, for instance, as part of the prenatal control, we try to determine what type of pelvis the patient has. And there are up to four different types of pelvis that we describe, and maybe different, different shape. There is a type of pelvis that we call android, because it looks like a male pelvis. And that's why sometimes some women may have problems for vaginal birth, and they have to be in, end up in, in a C-section. And a scheduled elective C-section, we know in advance, that baby is not possible to be born through the vaginal canal, and it has to be a C-section. Sometimes it's not so clear. It is an android, looks like, but we have to wait until the moment of birth and determine if everything goes well. Sometimes the baby is born through vaginal uh, birth. And these pictures of real bones, we can see that. One of the things that we see here is the aspect of the coccyx and sacrum. You see from a lateral view, you can see the female space between the coccyx and the pubis is uh, larger than in male. And from an inferior view, you can also see the shape. This is more round, and the male is more triangular. The shape of the pelvic inlet. This is a very practical way, quick way to assess, especially when we study the bones and osteology. We cannot do this in, uh, uh, during physical examination because we don't see the bones. But when we do osteology and see the bones, the pelvis bones, pelvic bones, we can easily do this. So you can get the pelvis and compare. If uh, the angle, the pubic angle arch matches uh, the angle between your index and middle, that's a male, and if it matches more the thumb and index angle that is probably more of a female. And also have to consider the other features or shape of the pelvic inlet, the distance of the iliac crests, 
And this is one of the ways that uh, people that study um, archaeology or anthropology, forensic anthropology, they determine when they find bone remains, they, 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 can, they can tell. That belong to a male, to a female, because this is one. And they have more, other more uh, measurements and things from other bones. This is a summary of all the features of male and female pelvis. You can see the angle here, 80 to 90 in female, male 50 to 60. These numbers may vary according to the different tables that they show us. The thing is that the male is lower, uh, it's not so wide. Okay, that regarding the pelvis. The thigh, the region of the thigh is mainly uh, formed by the femur, and we find the femur here. And the femur is the longest, heaviest, and strongest bone that we have in the entire body. There's an important blood vessel running here in the thigh also, the femoral artery, the femoral vein. Um, and they give big branches to the femur. You see the femur in the lab, you will see, you will find nutrient foramen uh, for the branches of the artery entering the bone. And sometimes when there are fractures of femur, the subject may have important amount of, ble of blood collected in the thigh, in the field, after the fracture of the femur. Up to one liter of blood may uh, accumulate there. Because it's a very uh, large bone and it has important uh, branches of this femoral artery. Now, it articulates with the acetabulum of the pelvis, of the hip bone. And this is what we call the hip joint or coxal joint. The neck of the femur, which is right below the head or distal to the head, this is a place where usually the femur fractures, a common place where it breaks. And distally, in the distal epiphysis, there are two condyles. Two condyles, one medial, one lateral, and they are going to articulate with the tibia, that is the bone of the leg. And this is what we call the knee joint. There's another bone here, the patella, or kneecap, which is a sesamoid bone, but it also articulates with the femur. The femur has uh, a surface for the patella. Let's see it here, all these features. The proximal epiphysis, the head, which is very round. It's almost like a, like a sphere, <coughs> half a sphere or a little bit more than that that fits in the socket of the uh, pelvic bone called the acetabulum. In the, um, in the end of this head, there is a depression, like a little fossa, that is called fovea capitis. That's for insertion of a ligament, the ligament that connects the head of the femur to the pelvic bone, and it's an element of fixation. The neck of the femur, this is the place where it usually, it's the, the fractures are really common here. Another place of fracture is usually common is right here. But usually when, the, when we hear about hip fractures in elderly, the common place is 
this one, the neck. That's what it breaks mostly. And there are two big prominences right below or distal to the neck, and those are the greater trochanter and the lesser trochanter. The greater trochanter can be felt and can be touched in the lateral part of your thigh. You go proximal almost. You touch your iliac crest and you keep going distal below and you will find the big bone here. That's the greater trochanter. You're touching the greater trochanter of the femur. And you can confirm that if you move your thigh, flexion extension, you can feel that greater trochanter moving. And the greater trochanter is great, it's big, because it has to provide a strong attachment for muscles that are very powerful, which are the gluteals, the gluteal muscles. The gluteus maximus, medius, and minimus, there are three. And they're really strong, thick. So they have to have a uh, very strong attachment. The lesser trochanter is another point of attachment for other bones. And uh, this is for you to compare anterior view and posterior view. How to differentiate which is posterior, which is anterior. And the posterior aspect of the femur, you will find this line called the linea spera, which is actually a ridge, a rough, you can tell by that. The anterior aspect of the femur is very smooth. You can tell anterior and posterior in that way. So with these two markings, the head of the femur and the linea aspera, you can determine if that femur is left or right. You just put it oriented properly linea spera posterior, and you see where the head of the femur stays. And it goes to connect to the left or to the right. That's a way to determine which side it belongs to. Going to the distal epiphysis of the thigh, here's where we find the condyles. Medial condyle and lateral condyle. This is posterior view. There's a little fossa intercondylar in between the condyles. And anteriorly, anteriorly, we have also epicondyles, like the humerus. There's a lateral epicondyle and a medial epicondyle. And anteriorly, we can see a little facet or surface for the patella, which is smooth and uh, uh, to get in contact with the with the patella or kneecap. Here we see more details about the femur. We see the head of the femur, and in the distal part, I mean proximal part, we see a depression, a little fossa called the fovea capitis. We see the greater trochanter. This is a medial view. Greater trochanter, lesser trochanter, and the neck. This is how the phobia capitis, this is the phobia capitis, this is for uh, the insertion of a ligament. This ligament is called ligamentum teres, and it connects the head of the femur 
to the acetabulum, acetabular fossa of the hip bone. And everything you see in blue, remember, is articular cartilage. All these structures are made or covered by articular cartilage. Greater trochanter, as we see here, is a point of insertion for all these big muscles like the gluteus medius, the gluteus medius more, gluteus maximus and gluteus minimus. And the lesser trochanter, the lesser trochanter is a point of attachment for different muscles. which is mainly the psoas major, iliacus and psoas minor. These three muscles, they are actually called the iliopsoas. Because if you follow them, all of them will come and get together and attach to the lesser trochanter, the iliopsoas. We'll see the actions of these muscles when we get to the muscles and muscular system. But this um, iliopsoas, the main function is flexion of the thigh. Flexion of the thigh. Now all these medial epicondyle, lateral epicondyle that we describe in the femur, they are for attachment of muscles that are surrounding the knee, uh, joint, and uh, ligaments, ligaments that stabilize the knee joint. When we, when we do the joint chapter, we'll see that the knee joint is a very important joint. It supports the body weight, and it has to be well supported by ligaments and very strong tendons and muscles around. That's why all these uh, epicondyles, like lateral epicondyle, medial epicondyle, adductor, tubercle, many of these prominences, and the thigh, I mean the femur, and we'll see some of them in the tibia and fibulas. An important marking to remember here in the gluteal region is the reference for giving injections, the gluteal injections. And we use actually some of the bone markings of these uh, of the pelvis and lower limb. One of the techniques, and I think it's shown here, one of the techniques to find the correct place where to give the injection is find one mark in here, which is located right here, and this is called posterior superior iliac spine. Posterior superior iliac spine. It can be, that can be touched. You touch the iliac crest, you go posterior, you will find a bony prominence there. Then the other marking is the greater trochanter, which you know what it is, the greater trochanter. Now you trace an imaginary line, between these two, and your injection must be given above that line, never below. Why never below? You see it there. What's in there? The sciatic nerve, which is a very thick nerve. If your needle is too long, 
and if your patient is skinny, not much tissue, muscle and subcutaneous tissue, then you can hit the sciatic nerve, which is not good. The other, the other technique is described like making or tracing like imaginary two lines, horizontal, vertical, determining quadrants. In the upper lateral quadrant, that's what you should give the injection, which fits in the same area. So that's how we use these bone markings of the pelvis and femur for giving injections. Fractures of the femur can be very, very um, uh, uh, spectacular sometimes because of the amount of blood that can be lost. And here you can see one of these fractures of the femur and see a big bruise, which means that there's a hematoma, there's a collection of blood there. And you can see the x-ray, how the femur is broken. And since there are very powerful muscles here, usually when this happens, there's an overlapping of the pieces. The pieces are like this, and you'll find it like that. Because all the muscles are pulled. And what we have to do here? Traction. They have to pull the lower limb in order to realign these bones. And of course, that has to be under anesthesia. And um, yeah. <laughs> you can't tell. What well, patient is unconscious, you, you can. Uh, but usually, they're usually performing the OR under anesthesia, general anesthesia, and how, how to keep this position. Usually they have to put some screws or plates to hold it in position. Uh, and always under traction, uh, and, it, and it takes a long time to heal, of course. It's a very, very strong bone. Another thing about the femur is that, I think we saw a little bit of this when we studied the, the, the spongy bone and compact bone. There are some lines, lines in the spongy bone, the trabeculae, that if you start following this, lines, you will find very interesting thin. But they go like a network, like a mesh, like that. And all that goes in one direction, like this. Because if you have here the pelvic bone, the body weight comes in this way. And all the forces, they converge in the head of the femur. And that's the reason why the neck is the most common place of fracture here, especially in elderly that have osteoporosis. And uh, the orientation of all these lines of the trabecula follow the direction to distribute the forces equally in the whole parts of this bone, the femur. There was an example. This is what we call a pathologic fracture because it's not supposed to happen, but in the elderly it happens. It's just, but this fall, you fall on the side of your body, and usually you don't break the femur that, but in the elderly they can easily break the femur because it's uh, osteoporosis. There's an incidence of hip fracture in men and women. Go both equal until 65, approximately, and then afterwards, there are more cases in women than in men. 
because we said and we saw that the osteoporosis is worse in female than male after menopause, especially in women. After menopause, it gets worse, and therefore there's more risk of hip fracture and actually happens. There are different ways to fix this, and these are some examples. Um, fixation, we call it. You can put some screws, like internal fixation, or a compression screw, depending on the place where the fracture is, or even if not fixable, because sometimes the bones are shattered or too weak, and they have to replace the whole joint, the components of the joint, which can be a partial, that's called hemiarthroplasty, or a total hip replacement where they put a artificial head and an artificial acetabulum. So it's completely replaced. The socket, the ball is artificial and the socket is artificial. The patella or kneecap is a sesamoid bone and it articulates with the femur. It has a surface for articulation to the femur. The medial facet and the lateral facet. In the study, in the lab, we will see the kneecaps, we'll see individual kneecaps and you'll be able to say if it's right or left because of this. The lateral uh, facet for the lateral condyle is larger than the uh, medial condyle. A sesamoid bone because it's in running in the middle of a tendon, the tendon of the quadriceps muscle. This quadriceps muscle is a very powerful muscle and it goes and the tendon wraps the kneecap and it attaches to the tibia. And in the middle, you will find this kneecap or patella. And the reason is because for different movements, it increases leverage for the quadriceps muscles for different movements, walking, running. Uh, sometimes people have problems of this tendon uh, patellofemoral stress syndrome, we call it. It's a inflammation, especially in people that run long distances. Yeah. Okay, the leg. Go to the tibia and the fibula. That's another thing, the two bones that you have to remember, which is lateral, which is medial. The tibia is medial. The tibia is medial, and that can be easily touched on the anterior aspect of the leg because there's a point at which it is covered just by skin. You can easily touch the bone there. Now, the tibia has condyles that will articulate with the femur. Femur has lateral, medial, epicondyle, tibia also has lateral and medial condyles. And distally will articulate with the talus, only one bone with the talus 
of the foot, or the tarsal bones. We'll see that is one of the bones is called talus. That is for connection with the, uh, with the tibia and the fibula. And the fibula, which is lateral, and it's a very thin bone. It's a very small, thin, weak bone, laterally placed, and it's non-weight bearing. The fibula is not part of the knee joint. The fibula does not support any body weight. And you take a closer look here, femur, patella, and tibia. That is a knee joint. The fibula goes lateral, and it also gets in contact with the tibia. So it's not actually uh, bearing any weight. All the weight resides on the tibia, not on the fibula. And the fibula with the tibia gets in contact in two places, the proximal tibiofibular joint, and there's another distal tibiofibular joint. Here we see both of them and some of these markings in the proximal in the proximal epiphysis, the tibia. There is a tuberosity called the tibial tuberosity, which can also be easily touched in the proximal aspect of your leg. That is where the tendon of the quadriceps attaches to the tibial tuberosity. And this tibia, when you see it from superior view, you can see the articular surfaces for the condyles of the femur. And those two places are, all, are called the condyles. Uh, lateral condyle and medial condyle, of the tibia in this case. The two bones are connected by a membrane in the same way that the radius in all them. And this is called the interosseous membrane fibrous membrane. The tibia has an anterior border, which is a ridge. That's the part that we can touch in our legs, the anterior border of the tibia. The fibula is lateral and it's covered by the muscles, not easily touched, even though the head of the fibula laterally can be felt and touched in the lateral aspect of your leg. In going distal, in going distal, we have the both distal epiphysis. We see the distal tibiofibular joint. That's where they get in contact. And the fibula has this bony prominence called the lateral malleolus, and the tibia, this prominence called medial malleolus. This is from an anterior view and posterior view. The lateral malleolus is that bony prominence that we feel in the ankle. That bone belongs to the, that, that is the fibula. That's called the lateral malleolus. And the medial malleolus is the bony prominence in the inside, the medial aspect of your ankle. Medial and lateral malleolus of the ankle are determined by tibia and fibula. As we see here, 
medial malleolus, the tibia, lateral malleolus is more prominent. Lateral malleolus is more prominent, and uh, it's uh, it belongs to the fibula. Tibia, medial, as well as a great toe, and it connects to the talus. This bone of the ankle called the talus. This is something very common. You twist your ankle like this. This joint between the leg and the ankle are also uh, is also unstable and it needs a lot of ligaments to stabilize and. Uh, there are ligaments that connect the lateral malleolus of the fibula to the bones of the foot and other bones, I mean, other, other ligaments that connect the tibia to the talus in the same way. When this happens, a twisted ankle, those ligaments are overstretched. They are overstretched and sometimes can be torn. We cannot tell many times. We just see someone coming with a history of twisted ankle and you see pain. Sometimes you see a hematoma there, bruise, and swelling. The only way we can tell if there's a fracture or, or it's just a ligament overstretching uh, is by x-rays. But pretty much the treatment is the same. As you can see this. You see a hematoma, a bruise, pain, swelling, and those ligaments are so strong that sometimes when someone twists his ankle like that, the ligaments are not torn, but the ligaments rip the bone. And the piece of the malleolus, lateral malleolus, is I mean, practically chipped from the bone and attached to the ligament. So that's why in some cases uh, we cannot tell if it's a fracture or not, and we, can, we have to judge by x-ray. Here you can see the fractures. Which bone is this? Fibula. This is the lateral malleolus. The medial malleolus is here, as the tibia. So the fractures are here and here. Sometimes this requires surgery because, again, to keep it in place, keep it aligned, they must have, they must put some screws or plates in order to stabilize that uh, joint. And what bone is this? Talus or talus. It's a good question. It depends on the forces that are applied. Usually this doesn't happen in like common twisted ankle. This usually happens in accidents like car accidents, motorcycle accidents where the foot is completely, I mean, twisted in different directions and back and forth, or your foot gets trapped in the, in the car next to the pedals, and, and that's when this type of fracture happens. Sometimes there are exposed fractures. You see those pieces coming out. Uh, and not only the bones, I mean, around there are blood vessels that are going to the foot. So sometimes it's very compromised. So in the foot, we have two groups of bones. The first group of bones belongs to the tarsal bones. That's 
equivalent to the carpal bones. In this case, they're called tarsal bones. And one of the most important of these bones, there are two actually, the talus and the calcaneus. The talus is the one that articulates with the tibia and the fibula. And we can see it here. And the calcaneus is the bone of the heel. Tarsals are all these bones. Talus and calcaneus are tarsal bones. There are some more. Metatarsals, like the metacarpals, and then the phalanges. And in the phalanges, we see the same picture that we saw in the hand. All of them, all the toes have three phalanges, distal, middle, and proximal, except the great toe, which has only two, distal and proximal. And this picture is showing some lines, blue lines, because they are called arches, and they are the arches that support the body weight. So there are three points, three points of contact of the foot. If you see uh, uh, x-rays or studies, or dynamic studies uh, of people walking, and you can see how the bones move, there are only three points at which the foot gets in contact with the ground. There's a heel, the first metatarsal and the fifth metatarsal, just three points. The rest is like arches. And of course, all, uh, there's a lot of ligaments and muscles, small muscles there. So the ankle or tarsus, that's the name of this region, tarsal region or tarsus. We find seven tarsal bones here. And uh, calcaneus is the bone of the heel which is the largest and strongest. And there are other bones of the tarsal um, group are labeled here. We see them more in the lab. The navicular, cuneiforms, and the cuboid. And beyond that, distally, we have the metatarsals and the phalanges. This is what we said, this is equivalent to the hand. All the toes have three phalanges except the big toe, which is called hallux. That's a name that we use to, uh, uh, to label this great toe, the hallux. And the joints of the foot, they receive the name of the bones that are compromised, or they connect, tarsal, if uh, we talk about the joint between the tarsal bone and metatarsals. Well, we said tarsal, metatarsal. If we refer to the joint between the metatarsal bone and the phalangeals, the phalanges, we say metatarsal phalangeal. And in between the phalanges, interphalangeal joints. These are terms that are usually used when we describe fractures, joints, when we see the x-rays. Here we see a more detailed view of the tarsal bones. There is the talus, the calcaneus, and starting from lateral, cuboid, navicular, and three cuneiforms, and three cuneiforms. We'll see that more uh, better in the, in the lab. The calcaneus is point of attachment for 
the calcaneal tendon or Achilles, Achilles tendon. And this is another uh, view of the arches that we said. When these arches fail, why they fail? Well, the ligaments sometimes are very soft, and very uh, uh, hyperflexible, and the joints are loose, so there's some problem with development. Then we may have uh, 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 kids with flat feet, which can be corrected if persists, but it depends on how well the, these ligaments and muscles develop in the first years. Well, they are important because they provide a good point of contact with the ground and uh, uh, increase the leverage for movements, especially walking. And I think this is the last one.